the title of the book's baptized in tear gas, because in my tradition, you know, there's this moment maybe that you're baptized with the water and stuff, mm -hmm. um, like you're initiated, but, but the journey of baptism is lifelong. It's something you practice and you get up and you're reminded of your baptism every day and you start again. Right. And you mm -hmm. make mistakes and, and you're forgiven and you keep going. Right. So, um, so when I say, you know, baptized in tear gas or, or baptism, I, I feel really similarly about my journey through anti-racism is when I say these are things that I struggled with, it's things I struggle with, things I'm struggling with, right? Mm -hmm. I will probably continue to struggle with. This isn't even as I became more self-aware or, you know, more educated or had more relationships. These aren't things that went away from me. These are things that are so a part of my indoctrination that they're really hard, really, really hard to unlearn. My name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually-minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome. All right. Hey, friends. It is Leo WT. I am here with my delightful friend, author, activist, and candidate for uh, ministry in the ELCA, Elle Dowd. And I'm going to let her give herself just a little bit of an introduction in case anybody hasn't, uh, hasn't met her, and then we'll dive into our topic. Yeah. My name is Elle. I use pronouns like she, her, and hers. I'm joining you from the Chicagoland area. And I am a candidate for ordination in the ELCA, which is the largest Lutheran denomination in the United States and the one that ordains queer people and women. So that's good because I'm that. Um, <laughs> I, I um, will also be starting my PhD at uh, CTS next month. So yes. I know there's like a lot of CTS students that follow conversations too. Like, hey, yes. what's up? <laughs> what's and, going on? Yeah. And um, I serve on the board for Soul, Southsiders Organized for Unity and Liberation here in Chicago, uh, which is a organi organization that cares about Black liberation, about abolition. Um, and I also serve on the board for Ed Large, which is Eurodescent Lutherans for Racial Justice, um, supporting the multicultural ministries of the ELCA, and for the Planned Parenthood Clergy uh, Advocacy Board. So All that's right. kind of like how I spend my time. And All like, right. Yeah. Like Leo you have just said. Like, you, have a, you have a couple irons in the fire, like just a just few. Like a few. I also have teenage kids, right? <laughs> oh, so that's another oh. thing. Okay. Let us never sleep on teen parenting because that journey. Honestly, they're angels though. They really are. So I'm really lucky. But um, but yeah, so the other thing, you know, I think what we're mostly talking about today is the book Baptized in Tear Gas from White Moderate to Abolitionists that is published by Broadleaf Books. There it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and the official <laughs> launch date is August 10th. I know there's copies trickling out there already too. And you can pre-order or order pretty much anywhere you normally buy books, but it's my story of transformation. I grew up in you know, in Iowa, in the suburbs, a white girl, a white moderate, someone who like thought that I cared about justice, but really um, had been indoctrinated into some like white supremacist thinking. Mm -hmm. And then my time in the Ferguson uprising really set me on a journey towards becoming a, a police and prison abolitionist and um, continuing to learn more about anti-racism and be transformed through those relationships. So the book is a little bit memoir, a little bit theological reflection, 
little bit of, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully like a companion on the journey. Yes. I really like that. Um, and we're just diving right in because I feel like at this point we're like old friends, you know what yes. I mean? <laughs> it's like my third time on conversation since like the spring, right? Like, it is. You're the okay. only, you're, you're one of only two three peats, And I love oh both of the people who have been a three peat. I love dearly. So oh I should just make gosh. you like a re- reoccurring columnist or something. Oh, that would be so fun. Conversation <laughs> is so great. I love yes. that. Thank you. Well, I happen to love the work that you do. And I feel like this is like a great intersection for discussion. Um, And I love that what you do in this book is you really challenge, you know, like, like you said, before we started recording, it's an easier read, but that's not to say that the topicality of easy uh, of it is easy. And I love that you put um, some room for introspection. And I love that you put specific um, reflection questions and, and action items at the end of each chapter, because I feel like in my journey from white moderate to activist, um, it, it really has been a lot of, I need that both and, because I think what a lot of white people frequently feel is like either scared or overwhelmed or just completely out of their depth. And I love that you're challenging people to go there, but you're giving them a bridge to get there. And I think that's one of the coolest things I've noticed about the book. Yeah, I think, you know, I have been this person and like continue to be this person that like I might notice something or start to care about something or finally wake up to something. But then Mm -hmm. I'm like, what do I do? Like, what does that mean? And um, I've also noticed that in my tradition, which is a, you know, mainline Protestant denomination, we uh, tend to love our book studies, right? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. we love book studies. And it sort of seems like, uh, for white folks, we kind of fall into one or of two traps. One is sort of like endless discussion, dialogue, reflection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like sort of living in our heads. And that, of course, is so important to our individual and communal transformation. But when we are just reflecting, we can, it doesn't necessarily make a difference, right? In the lives of our neighbors and out on the streets. Um, and so that's why the action items that are in there. Um, but the other pitfall is, and I fall into this one a lot, sometimes um, white folks, we get kind of frantic to like prove ourselves as like one yeah. of the good ones, right? Yeah. We're like, oh no, um, there's racism in the media and I feel really bad because I'm white, but I don't want to be like them. So I'm just going to like make sure I frantically performatively show up all the time and make sure everybody knows, right? Like all right. action, earn all the anti-racism scout badges, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And action is obviously really important, but we also need that introspection to make yeah. sure that we are are doing the inner work so yeah. that our, our work isn't performative and yeah. it, it actually makes a difference, right? And so that it's more about our collective liberation than centering white guilt in a movement yeah. for black liberation. Exactly, because I feel like sometimes that is what happens, like and I've noticed that especially in my area um, and in the circles I've been in um, previously because uh, my dad was a pastor, right? An evangelical pastor growing up. But our, the churches that we were always in were always in small rural towns that were largely white and in the Northeast of America. So a lot of uh, similar demographics, right? Yeah. And so there's the, there is this freneticism about like, oh my God, I don't want to be a bad guy. What do I do, you know? And I think that a lot of times for a lot of white people jumping in to the work, um, it's like this, uh, you say this in the book, like where people jump in with good intentions, but really no clue what to do. And I would love for you um, to kind of lay out a little bit um, your story, right? Of how you got to this, this point, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, getting involved in Ferguson. I know you mentioned that you were kind of just working in the proximity of where Mike Brown was murdered. Was that kind of how you like yeah. fell into this or did you have those sort of social justice inklings before then? Like, was this an impulse? Was this a plan? Where, how did you get here? I definitely had like some part of me that sort of cared about justice, but it was definitely you know, I, I was definitely one of those white folks who like live in their head and it was like mm-hmm. all a thought experiment to me. Mm-hmm. And that really changed for me in large part when I became a parent to black children. Mm-hmm. And um, I started feeling the way that black mothers and mothers of color and all kinds of other marginalized people mm-hmm. have felt for for generations that like this isn't just some you know, ideological ending white supremacy isn't just like this ideological thing. That's a good idea to do. It's like, there's real stakes here, like life and death stakes for Mm -hmm. me and for people that I care about. Um, but I wasn't like involved in an activist community or like regularly living that out. I was really kind of just starting to feel that way. Uh, when we moved to Missouri and I got a job in the Bishop's office in the Episcopal diocese of Missouri. And my job was youth missioner, um, for the whole diocese. So, um, the missioner part is like important. Um, you know, the word mission can have a lot of baggage, but one thing I really noticed is that my title was not youth coordinator or Mm -hmm. youth director or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Right. Like I was a youth missioner. And so for, to me that what that meant was that I was responsible for the young people, not only like in the pews of the Episcopal church and in our like parishes, Mm -hmm. but just the whole region. Right. And so, um, on August 9th, 2014, when, when white police officer, Darren Wilson shot and killed black unarmed teenager, Michael Brown, like that was one of my kids and like our kids went to school with him. And it was really important for me as a youth missioner to be where the young people are mm-hmm. and the young people are in the, were the streets. And mm-hmm. so initially I kind of went to check in on one of the Episcopal churches there. There's uh, St. Stephen's and Ferguson's an Episcopal church there. They had a food pantry. And so I kind of went to just like check in, see the priest, kind of like offer support, drop off some supplies. And I ended up um, over at uh on near Canfield on West Florissant where the protests were happening. And I had been watching on the live stream, right? I'd been watching the tear gas and the armored vehicles and all those things, but it felt really different uh, to be there, right? Mm -hmm. To, to be standing on the sidewalk and have an officer like wave a gun in my face, right? To, to see all of these people like with my own eyes, right? Not even just on a live stream, but I am looking with my own eyes. We can tell that these people are unarmed, right? We can tell that they're like not doing anything wrong. Like they're angry, but rightfully so. Mm -hmm. And to see the police just as an occupying army, really just like marching and advancing in synchronized movements with huge guns, with, you know, big vehicles that look like tanks Mm -hmm. and kind of after seeing and experiencing that, I just felt like I needed to be there and I kept showing up and those Mm -hmm. relationships and the people that I met and the experiences I continued to have are really what transformed me. None of the, any, any wisdom you might find in my book is not original to me, which is why I'm not making any money off the book. I'm trying to make sure that like the money goes to the places that deserve it, which are Mm -hmm. the the black activists and organizations that taught me. Um, So a lot of this book is- Oh yeah. I just, I just think it's like the right thing to do, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, so I, um, yeah, like I, 
I don't want to like at all act like I wrote this book as from the perspective of an activist. I really, like I said, I'm trying to be um, like, I am an activist, but I'm not some sort of like expert, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. like this um, well-learned person about all of these theories. What I know is my story. And then what I know is the things that I learned along the way. And so instead of positioning myself, like as an expert who wrote a book of like, how to be a good white person or how to end white supremacy in churches or something. That's not at all the orientation of the book. It's very much more like, here's my story and the mistakes that I made and the things that I learned. Mm -hmm. Maybe you think and feel some of these things too. Let's unpack and move forward together. Um, And the hope is that there can be, you know, some more mutual transformation just from the conversations that'll come hopefully from the book. Yeah. And I love that because you're so candid about your own journey and about your own pitfalls. And, and you, you're very careful to, to admit, like, I realize this, but this has been happening all along without me knowing it. And I find myself, like, I see a lot of myself in your book. And then I see a lot of yourself in the protests and in the movements that have happened where I live specifically in the past year living in rural Western New York, um, it's really easy to see a a whole bunch of Trump flags and Confederate flags and assume that you are in the middle of a completely unfriendly territory. But realistically, we had 300 people show up uh, at the first George Floyd protest. That's a large percentage of the population here. But um, we have to move from just being in the streets to doing the active work of Mm anti-racism. And I love how you talk about your transition and your realization from that first day showing up in your pencil skirt and heels. uh, And then you take us through, you know, the year to the indictment or, you know, non-indictment to, yeah. to all of the events. Um, and I just, I want to hear so much more about that because I, it's really my hope to become a better white person and to provide other white people who might not feel, they feel like they don't know enough to do something, but they feel like they want to do something, right? I want to speak to those people so that we can mobilize, right? Yeah, and I, yeah. I love that. So tell me, tell me more, like, how would you explain this, right? Your story here, right, that you've experienced. How do you explain this to a rural white person who's never experienced uh, systemic racism? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, one thing I would say is that there, um, a, a, big, a big thing that I learned is that even if we think as white people that white supremacy doesn't affect us, that actually all of us have a stake in this work, right? Yes. Not just because we wanna be good white people or better white people, you know, hopefully we do care about our siblings of color, our BIPOC siblings, and hopefully we are wanting to be in solidarity with them, but you know, not from like a white savior perspective because truly all of us have a stake in this work too. And particularly those of us who might be in the church or Christians, I write from that perspective, Mm. there is a lot at stake for us as followers of a man who lived in an occupied territory that was executed by the state, right? Mm. Who endured, Jesus endured police brutality, Jesus Mm. endured an unfair court system, all Mm. of those things. And so for folks who are maybe out in rural places, white folks who feel like they've never really seen for themselves or experienced white supremacy firsthand, one of the things I hope is that we can begin to find our stake in this work and Mm -hmm. how dismantling white supremacy is important for our collective liberation, for all Mm -hmm. of us. White Mm -hmm. supremacy obviously targets black and brown and indigenous folks, people of color. Those are the targets. And that's who is affected 
you know, primarily and mm -hmm. to the highest degree, but white supremacy, it definitely affects white people. It puts us in a limiting role as the oppressor. It cuts us off from our humanity. For those of us who are Christians, it undermines the gospel in a way that is just like very, 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 very serious. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot that we can learn about how we need to be in solidarity with one another for the sake of one another, but also for the sake of our own souls. Um, and I speak a little bit also as a white woman and as, as a white queer person about some of these intersections too, right? Like we will not end, for example, gender-based violence without ending white supremacy. And that is something that I learned. I used to sort of think of these things as maybe like both systems of oppression, but really you know, different, right? Really like separate things. And, and the more that I spent time with black activists and thinkers, the more I saw the way that these patterns play out and they're using the same script. And so there is no way to end these systems that harm me, like queer antagonism, biphobia, misogyny. There is no way to put an end to those things without also dismantling white supremacy. And our teachers on that really are the marginal people of marginalized genders in, you know, black, brown, indigenous people of color communities yeah. who experience these intersections every day. And that's true for all systems of oppression, right? For yeah. disabled folks, for um, those of us who are from, you know, working class or poor folks, like all of this stuff is so intricately linked to white supremacy that there's yeah. no way for us to reach collective liberation without no. dismantling white supremacy. Agreed. I talked um, a couple months ago, I talked to my friend Jen Jennifer, uh, who is a trans, trans female um, speaker, uh, former pastor and activist in her own right. And we talked about the unholy alliance of capitalism, um, heteronormativity, and racism and how they're all systems built on on telling people that they need something right so in racism you need to achieve whiteness or appease whiteness mm -hmm. in uh, heteronormativity you need to appear straight and cisgendered and in capitalism you of course need money so you keep coming back and these are all systems that are based on on distribution of power, exactly. Yeah, yep. hierarchies and, and binaries frequently too. Yeah. 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 And I'd love to hear some more thoughts on that because I think, like you said, I I too used to think of them as separate occurrences. But then once I started to um realize that the power that undergirds all of them and the control that undergirds all of them actually keeps a very small uh, succinct group of people in power, right? Yeah. And they all yeah. benefit from the same system. So I'd love to hear some more thoughts on that. Just kind of break it down for your average white person who may not be aware of how these things intersect and how they really do affect, you know, um, us. Yeah. Well, one thing that I learned uh, actually living and doing some activist work in Illinois mm -hmm. was that there's this thing that happens, this narrative, right? Kind of like pitting city folks against folks in rural areas, right? Yep. Like city folks are, you know, we're sort of spoken about as if, you know, it's like full of crime and they think they're better than everyone. And then it's also heavily racialized, right? Sometimes when we say the city, mm -hmm. we're really saying it's like euphemism for like black yep. people or something, yep. right? Yep. And then in uh, rural areas, there's sort of stereotypes about people being uneducated or whatever, all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's this narrative that we're very different from each other. And that is a narrative that doesn't serve any of us. It only serves the elite who 
continue to maintain power by pitting us against each other. Like mm -hmm. you said, it's a relatively small group of people who are kind of on top and mm -hmm. the way that they maintain power is by dividing and conquering, by selling us this narrative that there's only so much to go around, right? And then making us fight over scraps. Mm -hmm. And what I really learned organizing a little bit in Illinois is that folks in rural areas and folks in the city have very, very similar issues, right? Mm -hmm. We are both struggling to get access to healthcare. Yes. We all want our kids to have access to a good education. We We're all, all dealing with food apartheid. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so, um, we really have more in common in that way, even though our individual stories, which are so important, right? I would never mm -hmm. want to gloss over the ways that our identities and experiences right. inform this, but the way that we build solidarity across these groups is how we get the change that we need and deserve because there are more of us, right? Like it's a small group and they maintain power, um, not because of numbers, but because of these narratives where we are pitted against each other. Um, yes. So, and you, yeah. You see that time and time and time again play out and it drives me absolutely crazy. I mean, you see it, you see it in the bloods and crits, right? Like if we can fight each other, we're not going to fight back against the system. You see them against poor, uh, rural white, uh, males and then, you know, black people, right? Like that's something that, that has been happening, you know, that specifically happens, I think with the Trump administration and I've seen it play out in rural America is this idea of, of separateness that doesn't exist. Uh, a friend of mine who happens to be black said once that like, if you're a poor white rural person, you're still closer to a black person than you are to a rich white person. Yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about people who think they're rich. I'm talking about people who actually are rich, right? Yeah. Right. Um, but I think that that moment that you can begin to intellectually break down different systems of power and, and see similarities with other marginalized people, it really changes things for you. Things for people. I mean, that's what changed yeah. my heart was when I realized I was gay. I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> you know, and that was when the veil was torn, so to speak, yeah. Uh, yeah. to use some religious language. And I started to see through a lot of things for me. Yeah. That was when I started to see it. So I would say, too, like this concept that we're talking about is one of the reasons that Fred Hampton is like one of my, um, like role models or heroes. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so for folks who might not know, Fred Hampton was a very young leader in the black Panther party, um, in the black power movement in the, in the seventies and, uh, sixties and seventies. And he was assassinated. And the reason he was assassinated, um, he was assassinated by the FBI in, well, it was in 69. So he's assassinated by the FBI in cooperation with the Chicago police department. And the reason he was assassinated is because he was beginning to, he was doing these things very well. These very things that we're talking about right now, where he was negotiating truces between rival gangs. He was, um, hooking up sort of like poor white folks with Puerto Ricans, with other immigrants, right? Like all of these different groups across Chicago, that normally have nothing to do with each other or no, were like fighting each other. Mm -hmm. uh, Fred Hampton really said, like was all about cross-cultural, cross-racial solidarity mm -hmm. and about collective liberation. Mm -hmm. And so as he began to organize people, the FBI really saw him as a threat 
and the state really saw him as a threat uh, because that sort of solidarity is really what the empire fears. And so that is why they took him out. And if we think that that sort of counterintelligence programs are really a thing of the past, we're being pretty naive because black liberation movements continue to be disrupted by the state and activists continue to be targeted by the state. But Mm -hmm. I think there's so many things that we can learn from Fred Hampton and from his words and from his work and you know, being from Chicago, like there's people that I have gotten to meet that like, you know, knew him personally, lived with him, Mm -hmm. like worked with him. And so hearing and seeing more about the, the truly, the true importance of building those bridges and working Mm -hmm. together, not just like a sort of like, let's hold hands and skip off into the sunset, but because like, that's what people power is, right? Like, Power is, if we call power the ability to be able to make change and influence things, power is organized resources and organized people. And so when we get people together, when we know each other deeply, when we share stories, when we find common ground, when we begin to build, that's what really scares the empire because that's what really makes a difference. Yes, and the Bible is one of of a litany of of literary works who have described the cyclic nature of the rise and fall of the empire. Like the rise and fall of the empire has been the enemy from the very beginning, right? The consolidation of power into the hands of few left unfettered uh, and detached from the needs of the people, from the populace, from the Pueblo, if you will, right? That has been the cycle of history. Um, something I think that's really interesting that you mentioned is is bringing people together from co- like cross sector, cross cultural relations. Because I feel like a lot of white people, and you mentioned this in the book, are scared to talk about race, not even racism, just race. Yep. But I think there's some beauty, and I'd love you to riff on this idea because I think we're of like mind here. But I think there's some beauty in. Uh, not being colorblind. Like white people want to jump to, I don't see color. But the thing about cross-racial and and cross-sector solidarity is that we see the difference and we acknowledge that the difference makes us better and we fight together, right? Can you talk a little bit about your realization of that? Yeah, so I grew up definitely thinking that like sort of talking about race was impolite the same way talking about, I don't know, sex or politics or growing up, you're sort of socialized. That's like impolite conversation. Right. And so you don't talk about race. Right. And um, one of the other things that I really noticed is, right, was almost like saying a dirty word, right? Like saying like, so to say, to kind of act as, you know, the term colorblind is so problematic for so many ways, but that was held up as the ideal of like, Mm -hmm. um, which is, in many ways, based on this very thin interpretation, misinterpretation of MLK talking about, you know, in his, I have a dream speech, um, Mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, people who've only read or heard that I have a dream speech really don't get like the, the full nuance of all the things that MLK thought and believed and did in his own evolution and, and all of that. But there's this idea of like, if we could just like pretend we're all the same, right. If we could just Mm -hmm. be colorblind, um, then every, all our problems would go away. And that sort of understanding sort of acts like it's our color. That's the problem, right? Like it sort of acts like, oh, I'm not going to say the word black Mm -hmm. because like, that's a dirty word. We shouldn't talk about that. We shouldn't say that. We shouldn't notice, you know, that someone is black and that kind of attitude, which is what I was brought up with in the suburbs. It really, um, it really treats people's identities as if they're a liability or like Mm -hmm. something bad as opposed to something to be celebrated. Right. Um, and so 
obviously like within any group of any kind, people are not a monolith. So even within cultural groups and racial groups and ethnic groups, there's like all of this beautiful diversity and we can really learn from each other. So instead of trying to minimize those differences because they make us uncomfortable because sometimes our different experiences bump up against each other, Mm -hmm. we can really try to be curious and, um, and get to know each other uh, on a deeper level and, and to really relate and reframe this idea that like, I don't know, that it's, it would be like better if race didn't exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I think, uh, you know, I've gone through this process myself where I realized that I was racist. Like, um, I made a couple of videos where I started off like, hi, my name's Leo WT and I was a racist, right? Because I was, cause I was born into the system and it was indoctrinated within me. I was never taught differently. That's how, you know, it was indoctrination versus education. It's a shtick I'm on right now, uh, but I was indoctrinated with these certain beliefs, but I had to come to realize the, the value and diversity of diverse experiences, right? Yes. But the thing is, is that white people get scared when their narrative isn't the center. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something very interesting. So can you talk to me about your own process or what you've seen happen um, maybe with other white folks that you engage with uh, in terms of decentering their own narrative and why that scares the hell out of so many white people? Because like a lot of, I know a lot of good meaning white people who won't even admit that they're, that they have their narrative centered, do you know? Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, there, that's like a huge, as you know, because you've read most of it, that is a huge theme uh, throughout the book, right? Mm-hmm. Is that I, as a white person, felt sort of like I was the center of the universe Mm -hmm. so much that I wasn't even self-aware that I thought that way, right? right? I would universalize things in a way that I didn't even realize I was doing it because it was just normal to me. It was like the water I was swimming in and it just, it didn't, I didn't know or think that there was any other way. And so Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the reasons for me, like I'll speak for myself that this was so difficult and it continues to be so difficult, right? These are things that are you know, the title of the book's baptized in tear gas, because in my tradition, you know, there's this moment maybe that you're baptized with the water and stuff, Mm -hmm. um, like you're initiated, but, but the journey of baptism is lifelong. It's something you practice and you get up and you're reminded of your baptism every day and you start again. Right. And you Mm -hmm. make mistakes and, and you're forgiven and you keep going. Right. So, um, so when I say, you know, baptized in tear gas or, or baptism, I, I feel really similarly about my journey through anti-racism is when I say these are things that I struggled with, it's things I struggle with, things I'm struggling with, right? Mm-hmm. I will probably continue to struggle with. This isn't even as I became more self-aware or you know, more educated or had more relationships, these aren't things that went away from me. These are things that are so a part of my indoctrination that they're really hard really, really hard to unlearn. And one of those was really centering whiteness, right? And so um, one of the theories that I have about why that is hard for me and hard for maybe other white people too, is that we have like a need for control. We're Mm -hmm. so used to being put as the center of our own universes, right? For myself, I was speaking as like someone who was like good at school, thought of as a leader. And I had always been thought of as like someone who would know what's going on, someone Mm -hmm. who's in charge, right? And so when I would come to these protests and I wasn't in charge of them and I didn't always know what was going on and maybe they were making decisions I wouldn't have made, I'm over here like, mentally critiquing all the time, right? Like feeling uncomfortable about the, you know, protest march route or, you know, this particular, um, like 
like way of resisting. Right. And I would just have this like silent critique running all the time because there really was, and is some part of me that thinks that I should just be in control and I should Mm -hmm. always be in charge. And that really is internalized white supremacy because Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually matter like how great of a leader I am or how smart I am. Like as a white person, I don't have the experiences necessary to understand what's needed for black liberation. And I also like, there's whole practice and history around like activism and and black activism that like, I had no clue about that. I'm just learn, you know, continuing to learn about, but this need to just be in control, right? Because maybe if I just control every little thing, if I hold on really tightly, maybe then, um, Oh, I just lost my earbud. Maybe then, (laughs) um, you know, I would kind of be worthwhile and, and I would be relevant or something. Um, and, and so much of this comes from pressures of capitalism, right? I talk about my own struggles with perfectionism, this feeling like I have to achieve, right? Like I've, which we kind of talked about earlier with the having to like earn the anti-racist scout badges, proverbial anti-racist scout badges, like, oh, but I'm one of the good ones, right? Like this idea that we need to be perfect and, um, which is different and separate from excellence, right? But this idea of perfectionism, uh, which is really a, a part of white supremacist culture, really also is very directly related to capitalism, for example, because in capitalism, uh, you're only worth what you produce, you're only worth what you achieve. If you are not you know, worthy in the capitalist machine, you literally can lose your life because we've mm-hmm. commodified basic resources. You need yes. money to have a house, to have food, to have water. And so really it's like, you have to continue to achieve, keep going, like grind, hustle, mm-hmm be perfect. Right. And, and if you're not perfect, you're disposable. And so that kind of, for me, at least plays so much into this white supremacy, because I believe these lies that I have to be the best Mm -hmm. and I have to be perfect and I have to be in charge and I have to be whatever. Otherwise somehow, you know, I I'm disposable, but actually that's a lie. And my faith tells me that people are inherently worthy and inherently good because they're made in the image of God and that all people are deserving of basic human rights and things like, you know, joy and art and beauty and, and all the good things that life has to offer. Um, and so, yeah, these, this need to control this need to center ourselves, this like kind of itchy or defensive feeling that we get Mm -hmm. when we talk about race, you know, I like continue to feel that, right. I feel that a lot. Like I'm very, like, I feel that all the time. And I have to at least now try to pause and be like, I have this knee jerk reaction about wanting to defend myself in this moment. Mm -hmm. What is that really about? And Mm -hmm. try to really do some deconstructing and, and get a little bit centered. Yeah. It's really not about my feelings. This is about black liberation. And that's much more important than whatever discomfort I might be feeling. Yes. And that's something I've, I've dealt with that personally. And I've talked to other people who have been involved in doing the work and really, really their heart is there. And it's just an, it's a conversation that you have to continue to wade through where like, sometimes I'm like, Oh my God, I'm just a white masculine looking person. Like there's nothing good in me. And I'm so tired of this, like hostility being directed at me. But what I real, what I've come to realize is like, I'm putting myself as the subject of that whole sentence. Yes. Yep. I'm putting myself as a subject of that whole sentence. And so I need to quietly listen to what's happening, synthesize what I'm hearing. If I can do anything to change who I am, I need to do that. And then if I can do anything to change the situation of the area that I'm in or the organization I'm in, then I need to do that. And I feel like that's the work 
that we have to keep doing. And you can't get discouraged because like we are personalized something that's not personalized. You know what I mean? We're taking that on ourselves. Like we are not so special that people are just coming down our throat every day. Right. Right. Yep. I think too, that for me, this is another place where my faith is so intricately involved in this work mm-hmm. because when I hear, you know, critiques of white people, critiques of white supremacy, and particularly critiques of my own behavior as a white person mm-hmm. is really easy to feel defensive. Mm-hmm. And one thing that has helped me, and I'm very much, again, a work in progress on this is to remind myself that like my actions and my choices and all of those things are actually, they're separate from my like personhood or Mm -hmm. my inherent goodness. Right. Mm -hmm. And that comes again from my faith. Like I'm a person creating the image and likeness of God. I'm a sinner and a saint, right. I'm Lutheran. We use that language a lot. Yeah. And so it's like this part of me that's good. That's creating the image of God is untouchable, no -hmm. matter how awful all these other choices might be that I make. And so when someone critiques, um, when someone critiques whiteness or someone critiques me and when I'm operating out of white supremacy, that's a place I can get centered and say, don't panic. No one's throwing you away. Right. Like, don't panic. This isn't about your inherent goodness. You don't need to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. That is set and secured. You believe that because of, you know, Genesis one. Mm-hmm. Now that you kind of, you know, now that I've calmed down, <laughs> let's deal with <laughs> yeah. this very real critique, right? Mm-hmm. Really, really matters. And something I've, I'm also learning is that, um, you know, as white folks, we, and this is a theme in the book as well. We really tend to shy away from tension. We shy away mm-hmm. from conflict and there's so many things that we can learn and, and we can be transformed, but transformation doesn't come at all without tension. Tension is right. always present in in transformation, but accountability as white folks, it, it can really be a gift for us, even though it feels really tense. Like when mm-hmm. someone confronts us or there's conflict, it can, we feel tense inside, um, mm-hmm. But accountability is an opportunity for transformation and that Mm -hmm. is an opportunity for new life. Mm -hmm. And that is something that like, as an abolitionist is so important to me in abolition, we believe we don't throw anyone away, right? That everyone um, has inherent dignity and worth and that, that there's ways to, um, that we can minimize harm and we can work together and we can build the sort of world where people have what they need to thrive. Yeah. Um, but like, sometimes people think that when I want to abolish the abolition movement wants to abolish prisons and policing and the carceral state, the criminal punishment system that we somehow like want to abolish accountability. But my experience is that there's more accountability, um, in abolition and an abolitionist practice because Mm -hmm. it is an invitation to deep accountability. That's not only individual, but it's also, you know, communal, right? Like mm-hmm. it invites us into transformation. So, um, and, and instead of like our, our carceral system right now, which actually really doesn't do much to, for victims, no. um, survivors. And like, I know that as a survivor of violent crime, like there is nothing like that locking up the person who harmed me. There's not, that would do nothing for me. Right. right nothing. Yeah. But we, we can do better, you know? And so, um, there are these opportunities on the individual level and on the communal level, and even at the systemic level, right? As we build the sort of world that we believe in, there are opportunities for transformation, but that often comes from moments of accountability. And so um, nobody likes to be told like you messed up or you hurt me or you're causing harm. We can think about that as an opportunity for transformation, that tension we feel, the discomfort, 
Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, accountability is an opportunity for transformation. Yeah, I love that quote. That's that's like great. And I feel like it's so necessary because there really are like, I know so many dope white people that that don't, they're not actively burning crosses and lynching people, but they haven't yet realized their complicity in the system, right? They're, they haven't yet realized that racism is not a two-way street, right? I know, I know many well-meaning white people that are trying to tell me that their children have experienced racism. And I'm like, right. no, that's that's prejudice. That's not racism this is a different conversation but I think the heart of it is why are you so scared of accountability like it's almost like you know that if you're accountable you might lose something which is almost a reverse admission of some sort of privilege right right and (laughs) you know like one thing that I learned is that to there is a cost to Mm -hmm. anti-racism work there is a cost um, you know, to everything, right? But I think sometimes as as white folks and particularly as white church people, we can sometimes think that like, I don't know, like that doing nothing has no cost when really like there is already a cost happening, right? Like there is a cost when transformation happens, there's a cost. When we take risks, there's a cost. We will lose things. Some mm-hmm. of those things are worth losing, but like we will lose things. That's how transformation, you know, it's part of transformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, But the thing is, if we sort of try to stay frozen or we just pretend that we're neutral, we're still making a choice and we're still losing things. Like there's still risks, there's still costs. And I think that the costs, I've learned that the costs are higher, right? The cost of this sort of acting like everything's fine, acting like nothing's wrong or sort of agreeing silently on the couch and not really dedicating your life to this work. There is still a cost and the cost most importantly is the lives and well-being of our siblings of color. Yes. But again, there's also a cost for those of us who are church folks. There's a, there is a cost about like the, the ability for people to take the gospel seriously when mm-hmm. we're not living it out and for white folks yeah. in our own, in our own, um, the way that that white supremacy harms our own souls and limits us and puts us in these roles. Absolutely. It just deepens divides and it continues to deepen, deepen divides and it continues to uh, eschew power to a system that doesn't have my best interest at heart. Like I said before, like as a poor white person, the system's not working for me. Um, So if I continue to disavow the flaws of the system and, you know, worship, uh, you know, Christian, you know, nationalism, I'm actively also being harmed. And I'm not trying to center a white narrative in this. I'm yeah, just yeah. simply trying to say we all lose. And I do like that you point that out in the book too, um, where you, you, there's a particular scene where you said you were organizing a youth event and people were like, oh, why didn't you invite police to be on the panel? You know what yeah. I mean? Um, that was a really interesting commentary, I thought there too, because yeah. like, that voice doesn't need more amplification. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't read the book yet, there's this, I was organizing this youth event and I was inviting, um, you know, activists to come kind of share their stories. It was part of a larger youth event. We also did like media literacy and we did some service project for the Ferguson food pantry. And we, you know, prayed at the Mike Brown Memorial. Like it was a whole event. Right. But one, one part of the event was that activists were speaking to their own experiences and some parents of youth, you know, were upset and said, why didn't you also invite police officers? Right. And so there's this narrative out here, which is very much the white moderate narrative, right. Of like, we have to listen to both sides or both sides are equal or both sides have a point or both sides can be wrong. Um, and that is really 
does not take into account the power structure and the power systems at play. And so what I said was, you know, anytime you want to hear the police perspectives, you can just like pick up the news because the news is mostly just repeating their press conferences as fact. You can see the police like in all these press conferences, their perspective is the dominant one. It's clear. Mm -hmm. It's already getting institutional support. Uh, And that is not true of of black activists and particularly like the young black folks. They were young black queer folks that I had on this panel um, Mm -hmm. who were only a few years older than my youth in that situation. Um, And the other thing that I said was that, you know, again, this isn't like a both sides situation. I'm not going to put black activists next to, you know, sitting next to the folks that tear gassed and beat them, right? Like I would not put an abuse victim next to her abuser and sort of act as if both sides are equal. And I'm not going to put these activists who had been terrorized by the state next to these agents of the state that had been causing so much harm. But that sort of idea of like, panel where people come together, you know, we should listen to the police and we should listen to these activists. That was very much where I was, you know, even a few months prior to that event, I would have probably said, I would have probably said, yeah, let's get some police officers here and and we can all just talk it out. And it was because I didn't have any power analysis. Mm -hmm. And so learning that power analysis and being able to see and understand that a little bit better because of the critiques of black activists Mm -hmm. has really made a difference for me. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we have to, there has to be a conversation about power analysis. There has to be, because I feel like racism racism is, is one thing, but systemic racism is another. And you can combat racism in a lot of ways, right? But combating systemic racism is not something that we're necessarily always focused on. But the, the fact is, is that the institution wins always, and that the people that are typically make up the institution are intelligent, educated, you know, these considered to be these things, educated, rich, usually men, usually white. And that's been throughout the history of the world. And we, we, in 2021, we know that that's not the only group of people that are valuable, yet so many white people cling to that. Like, they like cling to that idea um, that, systemic racism isn't real and that white people can feel racism but literally you look at any institution anywhere who runs it yep and i think too like we really focus on um to your point we really focus on these sort of like the internalized biases part right Mm -hmm. like i was basically taught that racism was about internalized bias it was about Mm -hmm. one individual white person having like a mean feeling or maybe like saying like a saying a mean word or two Mm -hmm. To like a person of color and that's what racism was and internalized bias obviously plays into racism and is part of racism but racism is so much more than that because it is systemic and and it is institutional and systems and institutions exist to perpetuate themselves they resist that transformation right they're built in such a way to resist transformation which means resisting accountability resisting change mm-hmm. and so that's why you know, systemic solutions are so important. We're not just talking about individual biases, right? That need to be rooted out. That does need to happen. Um, I, but I really used to think one of the thought, one of the beliefs I used to have was 
there is systemic, you know, racism or there is white supremacy out there, but it's mostly because people just don't know. It's not on purpose. They just have these internalized biases. And I think that's true sometimes for some people. But what I began to learn was that actually all of this was created this way on purpose by design. It's working exactly the way that it was designed to work. It's putting in power the people who are, who it is supposed to put in power, right? And keeping those people there and keeping those power dynamics in place. And so this isn't a case where just like, oh man, we're, we're all fallen people and we all have internalized biases and whoopsie daisy, guess sometimes that means we accidentally built a system. That was really what I thought. Yeah. Instead, it's like, there really is, there really are architects of white supremacy who continue to build these things and have yes. built systems that are so entrenched that even if you switch out, you know, people and you switch yep. out individual actors and you work on this individual person's internalized bias, the system is so entrenched that it continues regardless. And so that's yes. why we need systemic change, not just sort of individual heart transformation. Although, you know, like I'm a person who's had some individual heart transformation, so right. I'm not at all trying to undermine that value. What I'm trying to say is for me, at least as a white person, that's what I was taught racism was, was about mm -hmm. individuals, which again, is a very white way of thinking, right? It's a very right, right. Western individualistic capitalist way of thinking um, yep. to sort of think that we can somehow exist as individuals as, as opposed to part of a collective. Yeah, that's a very European Western narrative. That is not how the whole world thinks. That's actually not how a large portion of the world thinks. Yeah. So yeah. I know we're coming up close on our time that we've got to let you go, but I would love for you to kind of give us a summation. Um, speak to whoever ends up hearing this, because I kind of just believe that this is a thing we put out in the universe and it'll keep going where it needs to. But whoever ends up needs to hear this, right? Someone who cares and they've started to work on their internal biases, but they feel powerless when they look at the system. I know in your book, you give a lot of action steps. So I want to um, remind people to get pick up a copy of Baptized in Tear Gas. Um, the proceeds are going um, to who is it a specific organization or organizations? It's so several organizations, which some of them are, are listed in the preface cool. if you're interested, but it's black activists, organizations, bail funds, political prisoners, and family members who lost loved ones to state violence. Perfect. So here's an action item that you can do, right? This is twofold. Uh, the proceeds contribute to the organizations doing the work and you can learn some stuff in it. But in the, in the book, you'll see some of these, there's action items in there. I don't know if you guys can see them in the screen, but there's action items at the end of the chapter. Give us your best action items for people who have started to realize their internal biases, but they want to do something. What are some tangible things that people can do to make a real difference? Because, you know, we're a year out from George Floyd. Uh, we're seven years out from Mike Brown and there's still work to be done. So give some, help us help some people figure out what steps they can do, even if they seem small. Yeah, I think this, this one is going to seem like a little intangible at first, but stick with me. Okay. One of the most important things that you can do is dream that another world is possible, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes maybe you hear about abolition or a world without prisons and policing. And that sounds like a fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you hear about ending white supremacy, dismantling white supremacy. And that seems impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not. I don't think it is. And so, and there's many people who don't think it is right, but we need you, we need you. And so, uh, you know, the people who benefit from saying that those things are impossible are the people who are benefiting from the systems who are already in place. So the first really important action step for that I have for the people listening is to dream about, you know, 
what is liberation? Like, what does it smell like? What does it taste like? Not just like sort of hypothetically, but like, see if you can feel it in your body. Like, what does it, what does it feel like? What does it sound like, smell like, taste like, you know? Um, is it like being snuggled in a warm blanket knit by your grandma? Is it like smelling, I don't know, your favorite Christmas morning meal or whatever? Is it, what is it? Right. And, and, and also to dream about the moments that you felt really safe. Usually those things go together mm-hmm. and then to little by little have the audacity to believe that that world is possible to believe mm-hmm. that that world is possible. And that's something that I think those of us who are people of faith or people who are just spiritual, mm-hmm. that is a particular gift that we bring to this movement is that we have a belief in things unseen, things that have not yet come to be, that are not tangible, but are very, very real. Mm-hmm. And so my major challenge and action item to people listening is to dream of that world, to mm-hmm. dream of that world, because that is a huge part of abolition work and making, yeah. making things happen. Um, and you can, you can be a part of that. There are already people who have been dreaming about this for generations. You can learn yeah. about their work. You can contribute to that work. We need you and you can yeah. do this. You can be an abolitionist. You can be a part of that work. You can look yeah. back when your grandchildren ask you, you can look back and say, yes, I was an abolitionist because I believed another world was possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's so true. And I think that's such a great step because so many people are stuck in what we have, you know, what would we do without prisons? I don't know. What would we do without police? Guess what? Police didn't exist even up until the Puritans. Like that was, there was no policing, right? It was yeah. the origins of policing is a whole nother podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but th- there is other ways of doing things. We just have to be open to them because then we can creatively think about what they could be. And once you know, a solutions out there, you can start to retro engineer a way to get there, right? Yeah. And there's, there's so many great resources out there, right? Like there's, there's another thing that I learned as a white person is just because the concept is new to me, doesn't mean that it's new, right? Again, there have been generations and generations of people who have been building on these ideas who like are professors at universities who have lived experience and education and who write books and you can read them. Like you can read Angela Davis, you can read Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you can read, there's so much, there's so much out there, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, just because things feel impossible or, or that we feel new or it feels very new to us doesn't mean that it's new and we can learn more about it and, and we yeah. can get some of those answers. And even more importantly, uh, the way that we get to that world is by sort of figuring that out together. Kind of the journey mm-hmm. is the destination. And so that's yeah. why I really, we really need folks to, to buy in and to, to have the courage to dream and imagine yeah. what this world might be. Yeah, as, as mind-boggling as it seems, there have been people who have experienced hardship before and they've done the work to not be in hardship or to try imagine a better world. So let's learn from them and let's read from them. Let's decenter our belief that things can't change and recenter the work of people who have been thinking about this for a lot longer than we ever have, you know? Yes, so, yes. Um, Elle, I have to say thank you so much. Um, if you want to real quick, just drop where people can buy the book and how people can connect with you, do that verbally and then we'll make sure to put that also in the comments so i'll hold your book up while you do it so it feels like a graphic (laughs) yes uh the book is baptized in tear gas from white moderate to abolitionist it's with broadleaf books so you can order it directly from broadleaf books if you'd like or you can order it anywhere that you normally buy books like um i highly recommend if if you can swing it an independent bookstore. You can go to IndieBound and order it. Um, particularly if you can find a black independent bookstore, that's even better. So you can order through IndieBound.
Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target Online, Google Play, Kindle. Eventually there will be an audiobook out. I've been recording it. So awesome. that is in the works. And if you want updates on that, you can sign up for my newsletter on ldowd.com. You can keep in touch with me on my website at ldowd.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash ministry, or on TikTok at ldowdministry, or on Snapchat, Twitter, and Instagram at hownowbrowndowd. I highly recommend the TikTok. I just recently got into your TikTok and I was like, why don't I follow you on here? And then I was like, you probably saw a lot of notifications that I I just liked your videos. (laughs) It was like not even an appropriate time of day. It was like a time of day where you're like, why is this person thinking of me right now? (laughs) That is like what TikTok is though. It's like 3 a.m. You're like, you're stuck in this, like, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a black hole, but yeah, my, I have teenagers, right? And so they, um, they're like, mom, you can't dance on TikTok. So I don't really dance on my TikToks. You know, a lot of TikToks are dancing. But I was like, listen, girls, it's like church humor TikTok. Right. So it's gonna be a little corny. Like right. it's gonna be embarrassing. You gotta bear with me. So if you're it's really into, I don't know, it. Bible jokes and like queer Bible stuff, that's, it's all over there. I like your uh, spaghetti uh, spaghetti strap tank top one where you put your collar on afterwards. Like we're oh, not yeah. gonna body shame here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'll yes. have to put the link in the comments of the video too, just so folks can check it out. But yeah. thank you so much for blessing us with your time. Thank you for the work that you've done and thank you for your vulnerability and exposing the ways that you've misstepped because it's easy to paint ourselves as, as the hero. But I think you've done something brave in painting yourself as someone who was completely unaware and you, you, you just tried. And I, I really appreciate your effort and I appreciate who you are as a person. And I can't wait to have, you know, maybe another conversation with you. We'll yes. put it in the books. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Have a good night. Thanks, Leo. See y'all. Bye. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.